This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The East-West Center's new president, retired Army Major General Susie Barislam, has been working on a roadmap for the next five years. The center just wrapped up an international conference which featured Nobel Prize winner Maria Ressa, a journalist from the Philippines. The center finds itself at a point in time when the U.S. is aimed at fortifying Indo-Pacific ties. It is, after all, where a hefty part of global trade happens. And whether it's a pandemic or political tift, economic instability can have lasting impacts. The East West Center's new president, who is homegrown, brings to the table a career in the military at a time when tensions in the Asia-Pacific have heightened. Varis Lam talks about the strategic plan and the need for input from those in the community who can help the U.S. keep peace in the region. So really what it distilled down to in our strategy is three areas that we see this challenge in the Pacific, of course. There is a geopolitical struggle as well as the climate. We will see impacts of climate, certainly in the Pacific, and broader this issue of climate change and its impact on food security, economic health, and migration, and therefore stability and security. And the other area, of course, is governance. We're seeing the rise of authoritarian regimes, the challenges to public services, and the greater gap between the haves and have-nots that are causing instability in the region, and challenges to free and open independent media, which has been a long-time legacy area of the East-West Center. And, of course, inclusion of women in a lot of countries across the region and the world So we distilled it down to three areas, really, is Pacific, the environment, and governance. But core to that, you know, those three areas drove our our pillars or priorities, that we'd like to say, as well as the vision for the future. And and talk about the mission of the East-West Center. Folks may be hazy on what is it that you do? So since 1960, when President Eisenhower signed into authorization the establishment of the East-West Center in 1960, the mission by Congress was that the East-West Center would promote better relations and understanding among the peoples and nations of the United States, Asia, and the Pacific through cooperative education or learning, dialogue, and research. So that was the mission, and that's still the mission today. But the question became, when we're looking at okay, we've done a lot of these great programs. How are we being relevant for tomorrow? So what is the vision? What is the core competencies that the East-West Center has brought in the golden years of the 60s, 70s, and 80s and into tomorrow? So we established a vision for the next 10 years. And that vision is that the East-West Center would be a premier institute in the Indo-Pacific that really develops and equips not just a leader, but a network of leaders, not just to talk about the challenges of common concern, but to solve those challenges of common concern along several pillars. And I think a lot of times, a lot of what happens is based on relationships, right? You've got to build those relationships. So if we get to a crisis, you can cut through some of the red tape or the diplomatic dance that you have to work through. That's absolutely right. It's those relationships. You know, um, someone mentioned to me, you know, well, having scholarships or programs where they just come to the United States, sometimes they don't have the full experience. And that may be true when you just take a student from another country and put them in a university in the United States. But the East-West Center was designed because of its special location, geography, multicultural nature, and of course our host native indigenous culture that brings it together. So the unique thing is when you take students from all over the world and the United States and put them in an environment that is structured and intended to build those kinds of relationships, the outcome is very different. Because no matter where I've gone since I started this, whether it's Fiji, Palau, Washington, D.C., New York City, and meeting with the alumni, and many of them come from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and current, they all say, I will never forget it was life-changing. It helped me to be a change maker in my own job or in my world or in my contributions to society. So that's the beauty and the ability to make that five-minute phone call that took 25 years. So really, we had the alumni conference and the international media conference with Maria Ressa and with the alumni from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and so on. They came and they even met after the formal events 
because that's how impactful the experience at the East-West Center was. Friends from all over the world. Yeah, I mean, you've got to have those connections that are genuine. And I think that's the value, I guess, in the East-West Center. Talk about this vision for the next century. Uh, You know, because the tensions are the way they are, there, there is growing concern. And, you know, you see different countries aligning the the hot spots. And, and you have a background you know, from the military, so you know you bring that dimension to the table. That's right. There are a lot of historical grievances and challenges, particularly in the Indo-Pacific, which really spans from California coast, west coast of India, which is sort of the area that we look at. But of course, it's global. These challenges are global. When we look at the rising influence of the PRC and the United States and, of course, all of the other allies and partners, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, France, and and other partners like the UK coming into the Indo-Pacific, there are um, competition, particularly with access. Looking from the lens of security, of course, that's been something I had done. But now when I look at in terms of the challenges and the voices of the people who are not in that group that I just mentioned, whether you're from the Pacific, I think that we have a responsibility to give a voice to those voices, particularly in the Pacific, that when we are talking about the Pacific, that we tend to have the the powers or the, the established powers talk about the Pacific without the Pacific. And I think it's important that that's why one of the priority areas is partnering in the Pacific of our five priority areas. And really investing in uh, education is going to be key. Investing in those leaders who are going to help to maneuver the strategic competition, the challenges with climate, and the challenges of basic civil services, public services that people need. I think we certainly, I think at the East-West Center, can provide that. If you're just joining us, you've been hearing from East-West Center President Susie Varislam about the strategic plan that the board and various stakeholders have been working on. There's a webinar on this tomorrow, but we'll continue our conversation right after a break. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect Oahu's water resources, offering tips to conserve water, such as taking shorter showers and fixing leaks. Updates on Red Hill at protectoahuwater.org. If you were in the midst of a health crisis and you couldn't answer for yourself, who would you want to make decisions for you? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about the importance of advanced directives and who needs one. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, investing in new ships, cranes, and terminal improvements to serve the needs of Hawaii communities for generations to come. Matson.com. Welcome back to the conversation. And let's return to our interview with the new East-West Center President Susie Varislam about the center's new strategic plan. Let's talk more about the climate change challenges because a lot of these island nations are really at the, the forefront. They don't have a lot of land mass and with sea level rise, they're really being threatened. That's right. I was really excited early on to be able to go to our Oceans Conference in Palau, where everyone from around the world, including Secretary Kerry, came down to Palau to talk about commitments. And you had billions of dollars of commitments to the studying of the impact of climate change and environmental change on our oceans. And when I saw those billions of dollars being committed to research of the acidification of our oceans, the warming of the waters, the bleaching of the coral reef, and its impact on fish and fisheries, which are economic core for many nations in the Pacific, and of course the livelihoods of people's daily lives, 
you know, I wondered how much of that is dedicated to investing in leaders who can help to create the policies, who can help to create the steps needed, who can resist any kind of corruption that may occur that allows unsustainable economic investments in the region that can further damage the environment. And my hope and my message to many people is that we need to invest in those leaders. So I'm really happy that we've had many groups of leaders so far since COVID. We had the Young Southeast Asian leaders who came, all 20 of them, by the way, and we're getting ready for a next group, had never been to the United States. It was their first time in the United States, and they were all focused on environmental solutions. Young people thinking about ways and bringing about awareness about how we can be change makers. You know, and, and I think, too, as we look at the climate change effect globally and what that means for trade uh, and, and just bringing some of the things that we need to the table, you know, whether it be what we eat or whether it's our iPhone, <laughs> all those things, I think, really throw the spotlight on kind of our vulnerability and why we need to partner, you know, because there, there are things like sea mining, issues like that that, that are, are, are cropping up um, because as the larger uh, countries look to see what else is out there as far as a natural resource they can mine. That's right. You know, deep sea mining within your territorial waters, you know, we think of it as a line, but I often say is the fish don't know that line. The currents don't know that line. The Blue Pacific continent is interconnected. It has been in the past as we've seen our ancestors move across the Pacific following the stars and the sea, and that hasn't changed. So creating artificial lines in our mind really is artificial because we need to think about its impact of the total ocean and how it's connected. If you've seen those maps of the Pacific, which you can fit all of the continents and then some in the Pacific Ocean, and you see the patterns of the currents, it's very clear that we need to consider one another. We need to be able to come to the table to talk about these issues. And that's one of the other areas of our priorities is to convene impactful dialogues of the priorities that we have, number one is equip and develop leaders. Number two is to convene impactful dialogues. Those dialogues to bring people together to talk about the very issue you're talking about and not just put up blinders that, well, this is my territorial waters. I can do whatever I want within this space in the Pacific and not think about its impact to others. And of course, we want to be able to partner with Pacific to give amplify the voices and to include and bring up our Pacific Islands Development Program, by the way, which has been around since 1980 because of Governor Ariyoshi and Ratumara, Sir Ratumara, first Fijian Prime Minister in 1970. Both of them worked together to create the Pacific Islands Development Program. So we want to continue that partnership with these issues that you're talking about that are emerging even more so. And as we look at rising sea levels and its impact, you know, some say that Nauru by 2040 will be underwater coastal areas, what are some mitigation and adaptation. During our international media conference, we had Pacific panels, and many of them talked about, you know, when we're talking about the Pacific, again, we should include the Pacific. And what do they say? Not just as victims, but as victors, as people with solutions to, okay, if we're seeing this happen, let's share the data and information. And what does it mean? What are the adaptation models that are out there? to mitigate the, the threats and the impacts of, of climate change that are already happening. I like to think the Pacific Islanders are very resilient. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And, and so, gosh, as you folks then move um, to make this you know, strategic plan happen, uh, you need input. Absolutely. We do. And so right now, again, one, develop and equip leaders, two, convene impactful dialogues, three, partner with the Pacific, and four, we want to foster environmental solutions. We have a group of researchers who are wonderful. We want to expand that partnership, right, and find out who are all out there. And we have some top-rate environmental leaders in Southeast Asia, South Asia, and the Pacific. And we also want to support good governance. So in order to move forward, of course, we have the foundational strategy. We're looking at the programmatics that are necessary to help develop and equip those leaders to create those networks, to connect everything that we do, whether it's research or convening, that's always going back to the leader. And when I mean leader, I don't just mean government leader, or, but change makers. One of our alumni from the 60s mentioned this idea. It's really about change makers. She was a 1963 graduate, and we just had breakfast yesterday, and she said, you know, 
I see myself as a change maker. Here I am since 1963, came out of the East-West Center as a fellow and saw this vision and this connection. And that's really what we want to do is to create those change makers. Well, what are the programs? What's the curriculum? Who are the partners? What do they need to see and be able to do? You know, cultural exchange is wonderful. We have a wonderful arts and culture, a place, a neutral space where we can dialogue. But should we help to equip leaders to understand financial literacy, media literacy, sustainable economic development? What are the tools and what are the resources out there to help you uh, invest and, and find those grants that will help nations when you go back to your countries to not feel beholden to those who have more information and understanding because you just didn't know. So to eliminate the I just didn't know is we need more partners. We need to understand who are all the stakeholders. So I'm excited to be able to share this. We have a webinar coming up uh, to really shed light on these priority areas that can help to inform ideas for programmatics. And so this is open to anybody? Sure, if people have ideas, we are welcome ideas and thoughts. We have some wonderful established programs, but you know, it, it takes those innovative ideas or needs that need to be met into the future that is really within the East-West Center's core competencies. And we wanna make sure we have the balance and diversity of United States, Asia and Pacific leaders that are in there so that they have that network to leverage. But what are really those other tools that maybe we're not thinking about. And I have to ask, because you're from Wahiawa, right? Yes, I am. <laughs> what is it about, I guess, that background growing up in that town? What has helped you, I think, with this position now that you're in? You know, I think of the multiculturalism that's there, everyone coming from Filipino background, Korean, Japanese, Chinese, Native Hawaiian, Portuguese, from military that was there in Wahiawa. So it's the everyone in that I've used the beef stew analogy before but I it really believe it's true and that really helps that we can come with our different experiences and we can gain from one another someone else's differences doesn't take away my own unique you know and it's not a threat but it's a gift and I think we need to think of that that way and that's what I got from Wahiwa and of course being close to nature we used to play a lot in the the ditches. The ditches, <laughs> which I didn't realize, you know, flash flood zones, but <laughs> it was it was just wonderful. Old post-plantation area, right. and so it had all those elements. But lessons to be learned, Absolutely. even at play. Absolutely. A lot. You learn a lot from playing, a lot. And I think of that space of playing today is arts and culture, a lot the unique things that we bring. If you remember May Day and why we used to have that, right? May Day was something where we brought all those cultures together. And we still do that at the East West Center. It's so wonderful. And by the way, when I was in high school, I remember we did the East West Fest. That was my first experience at the MN Center. We did a German performance, and all of them looked like me, did not look German in other words, but we were speaking German Rumpelstiltskin at the East West Fest to show where the East and West meet. And it was just... That was my first experience, and here I am, years later. Very exciting. Full circle for retired Army Major General Susie Varislam, who took over as president of the East-West Center earlier this year. To learn more about the center's priorities, tune into the webinar set for tomorrow, Tuesday, August 23rd at noon. You can look for links on the conversation page of our website later today. reality check today. Honolulu Civil Beat has a story about building up on stilts, that is. Reporter Brittany Light joins us this morning. Hi, Brittany. Good morning. So you've got a story about this new proposal, uh, how to disaster-proof buildings on Kauai. Yeah, so, you know, a good way to think about this is, um, you know, there are lots of different ways that scientists tell us we're going to be affected by climate change. Um, you hear so much about coastal erosion, and that's a big one. Um, 
you know, most municipalities, they require people to follow a shoreline setback ordinance that kind of tries to account for uh, coastal erosion. But there are other hazards, um, you know, so passive flooding, annual high wave flooding, these are things that are going to happen time to time. Uh, so what's happening on Kauai is the planning department is, is looking at some of these other flooding hazards that are predicted to happen. Um, and they're saying, okay, well, let's, let's try to regulate construction so that we're not allowing people to build, you know, in places that we know are going to be inundated with floodwaters from time to time. So this is a, a new concept, right? And you said that they, um, what, hired a consultant to see what's going on across the country? Yeah. So, I mean, this is different. You've got the, the shoreline setback ordinances that I think many of us are more familiar with, and it says you can't build here, but you can build back. This is not saying you can't build anywhere. It's just saying if you're going to build here, you've got to build up. Um, just to account for those floodwaters that scientists tell us are, are coming, whether we like it or not. Um, so what's so novel about this is, um, you know, it's it's it kind of marks the first time that a government agency in Hawaii is um, trying to regulate the style of building based on these climate change projections. And yes, the county hired a consultant and they looked across the country to see, okay, what other municipalities are, are doing this? And they found very few examples. Boston is the only other municipality that's trying to, to uh, regulate new construction in this way to make sure that new buildings are accommodating this, this flood water. So we could be breaking new ground though with this, uh, uh, this ordinance, this proposed ordinance. Exactly. Yeah, it's definitely forward-looking um, for Hawaii. And, you know, it's still just a proposal. There hasn't been uh, too much community, community discussion about it yet. But I think where the planning director said he um, thinks he'll get the most pushback is from, you know, folks who maybe are considering a rebuild. Um, so there's an existing structure and they're going to do so many improvements to it that it constitutes as a rebuild. Well, with this ordinance, if it's passed, you would have to actually build that house up if you're doing that many improvements. So that would be a significant increase in cost. Um, many of these houses already have to build up on stilts due to flood insurance requirements. So in some ways, this is um, not really adding a burden to, to many folks. Well, gosh, so have they set a, a, a date yet on first reading? Not yet, but it should be happening soon. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see what the conversation is like. Well, I have to chuckle because um, where I'm from in Guam, you know, our traditional way of building huts is we built huts uh, that were elevated. They were on uh, uh, limestone yeah. columns and caps. And so they were already raised because we get a lot of surf uh you know, surge. So it, it is curious <laughs> to see, you know, um, where the future's going. Back to the past. Yeah, a novel idea that really isn't so novel, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much for your story. You're welcome. Take care. That was reporter Brittany Light with today's Reality Check. You can read her story at civilbeat.org. You might have had to get up out of bed earlier today if you're one of the 50,000 college and private school students headed back to in-person learning this week. The back-to-school jam isn't just about traffic on the road, but the jam up in your sleep schedule, too. In California, public high schools don't start until 8.30. At Baylor University, students can earn extra credit for sleeping eight hours a night during finals week. And at Harvard University, new students go through a sleep education program before arriving on campus. The Conversations uh, intern Emily Tom talked to Hawaii students to see how they've been sleeping. Rudy Ramirez is waiting at the bus stop. He's on his way to the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and he has a busy day ahead of him. First, classes. Ramirez is entering his fourth year at UH. He's majoring in food science and human nutrition. He spends 50 hours a week on schoolwork, 
Then he moves on to his other duties, student body president, volunteer work, neighborhood delegation. He got about six hours of sleep last night and he's tired. There's been times actually that I would do an assignment that maybe three in the morning I'm finished and I have to be up maybe by eight and I don't even feel present. I can't even remember what happens throughout that day. He's not alone. According to the CDC, Hawaii is the most sleep-deprived state in the country, and it has been for the past six years. 40% of adults in Hawaii report getting fewer than seven hours of sleep per night. It's so noticeable when you're so tired and you barely can focus, you can barely do things. Kids like Ramirez at UH Manoa are balancing a lot. Classes, homework, sports, clubs, everything that goes into life as a college student. There's a lot of priorities to do during the semester. You know, some people are working, so that can add into the night or them having to do other things that might push back their sleep time, such as assignments that they got to fit into their schedules. But college students have lives outside of school. Lots of them are supporting themselves through their education. Ramirez says he's using federal aid and scholarships to get his degree. College is expensive. Living in Hawaii is also expensive. Between school and work, there's not much time to rest. And when push comes to shove, Ramirez says sleep is usually the first to go. People need to prioritize what's needed to kind of survive. So students are working late hours, then finishing their assignments, then getting up early for class. And when people in your lecture hall are sipping coffee and yawning, professors notice. We talked to Dr. Laura Lyons. She's currently serving as interim vice provost of academic excellence, but she used to be an English professor. I would say when I was teaching in the English department, it wasn't uncommon to have one or two students in a given class who might come into class more sleepy or who might even at times nod off. They might have said that they were up really late working on finishing a project or that they were working a job that went to quite late hours in order to pay for college. And so, you know, they were feeling sleep deprived. But sleep is more complicated than just having too much work to do. It can also have to do with factors outside of your control, including your race. Dr. Allison Nichol is a postdoctoral research fellow at Baylor University. She looked at data from 1.9 million college students from 2000 to 2020. So what we found was that underrepresented minority students reported significantly less sleep than their non-URM counterparts, and that this was also associated with poorer grades. So academic outcomes suffered as a result of the poor sleep. We speculate that the underrepresented minority groups are getting less sleep as a result of experiencing discrimination and microaggressions in their daily lives. In other words, underrepresented minority students, that includes Pacific Islanders and some Southeast Asians, are getting less sleep. And they're getting worse grades because of it. They often have more negative experiences in their day-to-day lives, which can actually cause psychosocial distress. Things like rumination, you're thinking about all of the sort of mean things people have said or done to you all day, and those things can actually disrupt your sleep. If they're going to class and maybe their professor has some biases and they are picking up on those, the underrepresented minority students might actually carry this with them sort of throughout their day, throughout their lives, throughout their schooling. At UH Manoa, where 80% of the student body is non-white, Support for underrepresented minority students is especially important. But are colleges really supposed to take responsibility for student sleep? Right now, at least at UH, sleep is largely a you problem. When Ramirez needs extra support, he makes sure he talks to his professor one-on-one. I have some really good professors that are more understanding, and I email them and say, you know, this is my situation here. I have a lot that I'm doing, and I'm sleeping in this now. Or... You know, if they've been more lenient, I can ask, you know, this is what I have so far. If you can grade this, or if you can give me an extra day or two, I would have a better detailed assignment to turn in. It's a one-time problem with a one-time solution. If you want more time for your assignment, you have to ask for it. And if you want more time to sleep, 
you need to find it yourself. But Dr. Nickel believes it's not about personal responsibility. I think if we worked more collectively that sleep would kind of come along with it. I don't think it's any particular person's fault that they get poor sleep. Dr. Nichol says if we want to enhance sleep education, we need to start with education itself. And we already have a template as to how this would look. We already learn about healthy eating and exercise in school. A lot of colleges require alcohol education programs before students arrive on campus. Many also hold seminars on safe sex practices, drug use, even mental health. What if sleep was presented the same way? Dr. Nichols says universities should start looking at sleep the same way they look at drugs and alcohol. We know that those things can cause trouble in college students, and we make a point of acknowledging that from the get-go, but we don't ever acknowledge sleep or lack thereof. If we can implement or require, I guess, some sort of sleep course, you know, no different than taking, like, an accounting course or like a home ec course teaching you the importance of sleep health and sleep hygiene. Now, Baylor might not have that required sleep course just yet, but they do have upper level courses about sleep in their psychology department. They also run the Sleep Neuroscience and Cognition Laboratory, which is dedicated to studying sleep and health. Sleep just plays a large part in Baylor academics, but different schools have different needs. And UH looks a lot different than Baylor. A comprehensive sleep policy here would be hard, if not harmful. For example, Dr. Nichols suggests pushing back start times. It's something Baylor has already done. Making the school start times later would help all high school, college students in general. We are pretty adamant about not starting classes before 9 a.m. if possible. High school students, college students are not really mentally prepared to start learning until 9. But Dr. Lyons says early start times can help with accessibility. When she was a professor, she noticed that early morning classes can be more convenient for a lot of commuter students who want to avoid long evening drives. I don't think that at Manoa we could actually push back the start time to 9 a.m. in the way that Baylor does. Baylor is a much more residential campus than Manoa, and it serves a different population. Dr. Lyons explained that starting classes earlier in the day means they have time to teach more classes, which means teaching more students. It's especially helpful for general education requirements. So if you have an English 100 class at, say, 7.30 a.m., then you can have another one at 8.30 and 9.30 and so on. The more classes you hold, the more students you can teach which provides more flexibility for working students. A university like ours, which has a number of students who have significant commutes and has students who work and who work at various times, has to be flexible in terms of scheduling. The schedule allows them the chance to take classes at a time that's going to work for them. Not only does UH start early, but it also goes later into the evening. They're even considering night classes. And the more time you spend in a night class, the less time you're actually sleeping at night. But the university has many returning students, adults who go back to school to get their degrees. We actually have talk in the Manoa cabinet about the need to think about, are we offering enough classes in the evening, especially to fulfill the needs of returning students who might still be in full-time employment. They obviously need that job in order to support themselves and their family, but they are still committed to receiving a college degree, and, and we need to equally be committed to providing classes at times that will help those students. Basically, there is no one-size-fits-all way to address sleep amongst college students. Schools with more commuter students or more returning students can't do everything a residential school can. Each school will have to figure out what works best for its students. Still, there are other ways to address sleep hygiene without changing class times or workload hours. Dr. Nichols suggests making it part of the curriculum. I've always suggested that if we, as a culture, <laughs> would start recognizing how important sleep is to our overall health and our social interactions and our behaviors and basically everything that we do on a day-to-day -day basis, that we would actually implement you know, sleep education in schools 
from early elementary school all the way through college and provide support for good sleep. Dr. Lyons says she could see the university starting other initiatives to encourage better sleep. She told me she doesn't think they'll have a sleep course, at least not anytime soon, but... Education is not obviously just in a classroom. We also have to think about other ways that we educate students, like having workshops or I think about the kinds of messaging we do, like in terms of posters or departments sending things out or the counseling center sending things out. So maybe we'll see university counselors or health specialists work with students on sleep. Maybe we'll see seminars and workshops on the importance of sleep. Maybe we'll see later start times, not at UH, but in middle schools and high schools. Rudy Ramirez hopes so. For one, there could be more awareness of how much sleep is affecting your health, long-term and short-term, memory, even your brain. For now, though, we'll have to wait and see. Students are sleep-deprived. Ramirez is tired. But still, we can dream. That was the Conversation Summer intern, Emily Tom, reporting on sleep among college students. Tom heads back to school herself next week, where she promises us she will try for a full eight hours in between her studies. We're talking about sleep all week on The Conversation. Tomorrow, we'll be taking a look at how sleep affects your immune response. And we want to hear how you're sleeping. Share your thoughts on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or fill out our sleep survey at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Ala Moana Hotel by Mantra, welcoming guests, offering rooms and suites with ocean, mountain, and city views, and a lobby reflecting a blend of Hawaii's tropical colors. Reservations at alamoanahotel.com. On the next Fresh Air, former Republican operative Tim Miller talks about how his work as a GOP hatchet man helped create conditions that enabled the rise of Donald Trump. Miller also describes his interviews with Republicans who privately condemn Trump but find reasons to support it. Miller's new book is Why We Did It. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, with virtual courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Virtual Open House Sunday, August 28th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. The 20th Duke's Ocean Fest kicks off in Waikiki this week. Among the events on tap for the week-long festival are canoe and stand-up paddleboard races, Beach sport challenges and surfing competitions, including one featuring dogs. 18 teams and four solo surfing dogs will vie for this year's title, including the world's oldest surfing dog, Luna. The 17-year-old Jack Russell Terrier lives on Oahu and won the competition in 2016 and 17, but her life hasn't been all waves and trophies. She's battled cancer, overcoming losing an eye. She nearly died after being mauled by another dog. The conversations Russell Subiano caught up with Luna and her surfing partner, Alika Vaquer, in Waikiki last Friday. How long have you guys been surfing together? Uh, since she was six months old, so it's almost 17 years. Yeah, she's almost 17, so 16 and a half years. How did you get her on a board? Were you surfing one day and she kind of I started with a skateboard, actually. Yeah. I had a longboard skate, so I was sitting on the board and having her on my lap, and I was going down the driveway. And then I started to stand up on the skateboard, and then we started to skateboard, and she loved skateboarding. And then I was like, all right, now it's time to come to the ocean. And she hated the water. She didn't want to go in, so the first time was actually kind of traumatizing. And I was like, all right, she's a terrier, she doesn't like water, so be it. A few months go by, and then we go play in the river somewhere. And she was like running on the banks on the river, and then it started to be like more vertical with little cliffs. And then she fell in the water, so she had no choice but swimming. And then she started to climb back up and fall again. So she found out 
that was actually kind of entertaining. And from that day, she started to learn to appreciate the water. I was like, oh, let's give it another shot. So I went to the ocean and then she went swimming and then she loved swimming. I was like, okay, now let's go back on the surfboard. And from there, it started to get better. Yeah, from there, she started to love surfing. And you're here with her to surf. Uh -huh. Does she jump on the board right away and you paddle out? Uh, she used to jump right away. Now getting older, she's like, meh, kind of like <laughs> more grumpy. I don't surf as much as I used to. I just go once in a while, but yeah, I just catch a couple waves and come in. Yeah, she's tired. But yeah, she just stays on the ball. We paddle out. Yeah, we usually queens over there. I like surfing in Hawaii, you know, by pillars. Right, right. Yeah, there's some good waves over there. That's usually my go-to spots. So yeah, Diamond Head a couple times, but I like Queens because people are friendly, people know me, you know, they kind of like let you waves. Seems so. like the, the wave is softer out here too. Right? Yeah, 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 it's like nice and feeling really, really good for is, surfing with the dog. Is there a spot outside of Hawaii that you've taken her to surf? Yeah, I mean, we went to Central America, so I got a couple waves over there. And before moving to Hawaii, I was born in Hawaii, but I grew up in France. And I used to surf in France over there. So okay. in the Mediterranean Sea and the Atlantic, that's where she started. You went from, was it California to Panama? Is that where you went? Yeah, yeah. I shipped the van from here to California and then I, I followed the Pacific coast. So I drove down Baja and then took the ferry to the mainland Mexico. Okay. And then I followed the whole coastline all the way to Panama and then back. What did people think of seeing a dog in the surf on that trip? Well, people were really amazed. I mean, it's. Not a lot of people have pets that they bring everywhere yeah. over there. It's kind of a different approach. So everybody made friends with me and they were like, oh, cool, she surfs. Wow, I didn't know you could surf with a dog. And every time I had like military controls and all like, you know, the customs and all that, I was telling her the story and they would drop everything, get on their phone and find the Instagram. And they would, ah, oh, have a good day, taking pictures. And so it helped a lot having her on the trip for, you know, making friends and like showing, uh, you know, friendliness. Aloha spirit, and yeah, even with the officials, it was like always so much easier with Luna. Yeah, yeah. You guys have won the competition twice, Yeah. right? Uh -huh. What's it like out there? Uh, what's what's well, the competition like? The, the thing is like, over the years, like we could surf way outside, which is my type of waves, but for like the different levels of dogs, different people, for the public, they wanted to bring it in more at baby queens. So it's more like, like a, a little show off yeah. than a contest. So I think it's like, there are skills, but also like cuteness that, oh, yeah. that, that weighs in the balance with the judges. But to me, like I do better in the waves at Queens. So the first years we were surfing out there, I was killing it. <laughs> yeah, there's different levels of people. Some really good competitors out there with a stand-up paddle. Some people are, are ripping it. I was surprised I won't, because I've seen people that were like really, really good. It's not crazy competitive. She's 17 years old, right? Yeah. 17. Yeah. And you were talking about how she was able to ride a skateboard early on and two-time champion of, of this competition. But I know that she's had some things to overcome as well. Oh, yeah. She yeah. had breast cancer. She had, like, tumors on the side. She had some growth on the, the other eye that she had to get. In Costa Rica, she got mauled by two pit bulls. Oh, People man. told me to put her down because she was like shredded to pieces. Like that whole side here was open. You can see kind of like this, the, that whole chunk here was like flopping. She had like wounded, like big wounds to the head. She was like in pieces and ah, she's tough. She made it. I nursed her back and she made it through when people told me to put her down. So yeah, yeah that's, she that's had a lot. a lot of surgery over the years. How did she lose the eye? Uh, she had a cataract, so she was almost blind from that eye. And she was playing at home, like running, and she hit a chair in the eye. So she dislodged the lens, and she had to go to the emergency room, and, you know, they had to take the eye out. So, yeah, she was in pain. But, yeah, she didn't care much. I mean, it was, she wasn't seeing anything from it, so, yeah, they're resilient. Yeah, and, and just looking at her now, uh, aside from the missing eye, I don't think that you would be able to know that she had been through so oh, much. Yeah. No, she's, yeah, she's tough. She's really impressive. Well, it's, it's a tough breed to begin with. Jack Russells are super energetic and they're known to live longer. So it's it helped. Plus, you know, going into the ocean, swimming, doing exercise regularly, all that stuff is healthy for the dog. Yeah. So it, it helps with the longevity, I think. When a human and a dog have a relationship like this, uh -huh. you know, when they participate in activities together, 
how do you think it impacts that old saying that a dog is man's best friend? It's just a continuity in a modern life, like to have fun with your dog. So it's, it's a bond. It's like a father, daughter in this case, like type of bond and almost like even better than father dog because then you say you're, you're like really like a partner, you know, as like when your father and daughter, are, you know, there's some independence and both both human beings, her, she wants to be with me all the time. That's, that's her purpose. <laughs> if somebody out there had a dog and, and was a surfer and wanted to do some tandem surfing with their dog, yeah. how would you recommend they start? What I would recommend is to get in the water and get the dog acquainted with the water and have like positive reinforcement, giving them treats, show them that it's fun and a good, a good positive activity. And then if they like that, then you can go to the next step, which is gonna bring them on the surfboard. Well, yourself has have to be, you have to be a good surfer to begin with, because you know you have to deal with other people in the water for the safety of the dog. Like their life is at stake, you know. Like they can't duck dive or anything. They hold their breath really well. <laughs> so she got wiped out on some gnarly stuff, and like she pops right back up. So it's it's how you bring them into the water. It's like little by little, make them comfortable with the with the uh, with the ocean and evaluate their you know their level of their skills for swimming because not every dog is a good swimmer right, right. some dogs are bigger they are like you know slower uh, a little dog will stay under the water longer so uh, as soon as there's a little foam over her she gets you know buried in the foam so you gotta assess all that and see if the, that's the right choice uh, for the dog first and then for you you know yeah, the highest I surfed with her was like solid head high, slightly overhead, and I got one wipeout, and then after that, I was like, I, I stopped. But I had to jump and grab her yeah. to like keep her out of the water. And she doesn't wear a leash or anything. No, no, yeah. yeah. If she goes under. Yeah. You gotta find her. Exactly, and usually you go more in than they are. Yeah. They stay behind. They they don't they don't drift too much. They just stay there. <laughs> It seems like the day is really nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, I just want to paddle out. It's good exercise for her. She's going to fall in the water for sure, swim a little bit. Right. Right. Yeah, keeps her going. Right well, thanks, thanks so much, You're Alika. Welcome, Russell. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. And that was Alika Vaker talking with HPR's Russell Simiano about his surfer partner, Luna the Jack Ter uh, Russell Terrier. You can catch the duo in tomorrow's Raising Canes going to the Dogs Surfer Competition at the Duke's Ocean Fest starting at 9 a.m. at Queens Beach in Waikiki. It should be a lot of fun. Spectators are encouraged, but the event organizers ask that pets be left at home. And we stay out on the beach for this next story. Remember that Hukilau fishing song? You know the one. Everybody loves the Hukilau. Where the lau lau is the cow cow at the Hukilau. We throw our nets out into the sea. And all the umba come swimming in me. Oh, we go weak to the Hukilau. Well, there was a call to take part in a hukilau this weekend. It was part of the story of the origin of the shaka, the story of aloha. It's a film by Steve Sue that resumed production uh, that was paused because of the pandemic. A release is set for next year. A couple hundred people turned out to take part and learn more about tr the traditional method of fishing with nets. The EA resident, Carissa Jones, is an educator and community builder who shares more about the story behind the hukilau. The hukilau itself is a traditional way of fishing for a community, right? And Hawaiians would lay out the nets and it would take the whole community to bring the nets in and then they would divide up the catch among the whole community. Uh, and, you know, Hawaiians have been doing that since forever. In, I don't know, maybe the 40s, 50s, something like that, the church needed to raise money to build a new church because their old chapel burned down. So they needed to raise money for a new one. So they had an idea of doing a hukilau, but actually inviting visitors to come up and participate. And they sold tickets for that so that people could, could come and participate. And they would bring the nets in and then cook all the fish. And then while the fish was being cooked, they would put on a show for all these visitors, you know, hula, music, whatever. And 
and then they would have a paina after that with all the fish that had been cooked that they had caught. So the concept of a like a luau, the commercial luau that we have today, was born right here in Laie because that was how the community raised money to support the things that the community needed. And then later it became what we know now as the Polynesian Cultural Center. So since then, the community still does hukilau. We do them for a lot of our community events. It's just there's not as much fish in the ocean anymore as there used to be. In the old days when the mullet would run, you know, and there's an old Hawaiian story from the mullet running from Eva all the way around the island to this beach right here, Laie Bay, they would come and circle around in the bay. And so that's why the hukilau was so effective here because they could take the nets out and circle the entire school of mullet, the aama, you know, from the song. <laughs> <laughs> and that would be what they would bring in from all the nets. So it was a good place to fish because of the traditional pattern of the mullet when they swam to Laie. And fast forward today, not so much mullet today. I only saw a couple fish <laughs> brought only, in by net. a few fish. I mean, yeah, this whole area, Oahu in general has been overfished. And it's always been a problem because our community, local fishermen, families can't catch the fish that they need to support themselves anymore. So, you know, all of those efforts to help Aloha Aina close beaches periodically, let the reef recharge, rebuild, let the fish, you know, grow again. That's what we need. We need to restore our fish ponds. We need to restore our reefs. We need to restore our local fisheries so that our communities and families can, can fish. That was Carissa Jones talking about the tradition of the hukilau. The Saturday event included a luau and entertainment. The film, uh, Shaka, the story of Aloha, explores the origins of the popular hang loose sign. It's expected to be released next year. We throw our nets out into the sea And all the armada comes where we me Oh, we go to the hukilau Hookie, 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 well, that is it for us today. Tomorrow, we talk about the films being featured at the Duke's Ocean Fest. Got a, a feedback for us? Call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you missed any of the episodes in the series about uh, sleep this week, you can listen back to all of it. Our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. 